Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, and I'm so glad that you're here today. It was a very busy weekend here uh, on our campus. Thank you to those of you who were part of our worship arts ministry for putting together a fabulous Christmas musical and being able to platform the gospel for lots of people who were here over the weekend. So thank you for that. It was a great weekend, and uh, today we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 11. Um, so if you haven't taken your Bible out and turned to that passage, uh, would you do so? And let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we study this text today. Father, what a great text, a historic one, an important one, a treasure trove of great material. And we pray that you would help us to understand its meaning and its application in our lives today. As we see things about Israel and We're going to see some things about ourselves, and we're so grateful that there's answers in Jesus. And so we pray that we'll leave today more in love with Him and more inspired to know the Spirit of Christ and ready to live life when things get very difficult and hard. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Season of Advent is a time of waiting and a time where we celebrate the coming of Jesus. The word Advent comes from an Anglicanized version of the Latin word, which means to come. And it's a celebration of the coming of Jesus. It's the first event in the liturgical church calendar. If you grew up in that kind of church tradition, you know the church calendar begins with Advent and then concludes in May with Pentecost Sunday. Regardless if that was your spiritual heritage or your journey or not, Advent is significant because it's a moment where we celebrate the coming of Jesus and all of what that means with also a view towards his coming again. And so we're sort of in this world that we live in now between two homes. We've had Christ enter our world, and yet we're waiting and longing for him to come again. What we celebrate during this Christmas season, the incarnation of Jesus, him coming as a baby, is very significant. It gives us both the ground of the gospel. Without the coming of the Savior, there would be no redemption. But it also gives us the model of what Christianity really looks like, that idea of coming in humility and taking upon the form of flesh and giving up his um, rights to to be the the son of God without flesh. This, This is what Christianity is, and it really is where it begins in this beautiful moment in Bethlehem. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 11. In fact, what we're going to do is something a little different. We're going to be studying the same text for three weeks in a row. So every Sunday for the next three weeks, you're going to hear the same passage read, and we're going to break it up into three different segments that we're going to be looking at over the next three Sundays. Um, The reason is is that this particular uh, sermon series was designed by one of our pastoral residents. Um, What you may not know is that preaching is one thing, but designing sermon series, it's a whole different skill set. And so I put a challenge out to our pastoral residents that, hey, I want you to design an Advent series. And so what we did is had all three of them design it, and then we had a sermon series shark tank. What we did 
I'm not joking. We uh, had all three of them come in, and they made a pitch, and, and there was a $50 gift certificate to a downtown restaurant on the line, so we put some money in the game, right? And uh, they came in, and they, they, they made the pitch as to what their series was going to be, and uh, then uh, the guys who were on the preaching team decided uh, which of the three options we liked best, and I had a really big uh, influence on this because I had to preach two of the three messages that uh, were given, and uh, Joseph Ray was the one who presented uh, the particular series that we're in. So if you don't like it, it's his fault. So... <laughs> so I'm going to speak these two weeks, and the final week of the year, the pastoral residents will be preaching, and so I'm going to try and leave something on the table for them from Isaiah 11, and we're going to have three different uh, uh, preachers in each of the three services, at the 8, the 945 service, and the 1130. Uh, Did I get those times right? Because first service, I didn't get them right. I just show up at like 6, and I just stay all day. So I don't know what, what time the services are. But you know, the first three, the, all three services, you come, and each you'll have a different speaker in each of them. It'd be really wonderful. Some of you should just stay all day and hear these three guys preach and encourage them and challenge them. Because part of our vision is to try and help raise up young uh, communicators of God's Word who can be effective um, in this pulpit and in other pulpits in the future. Uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, said that every young man needs an old woman that thinks he's the best preacher she's ever heard. And so... If you like to be that old woman, then please help them, and or maybe an old man or a young man, and just encourage these brothers as uh, they bring the word. So that's what we're going to be doing over the next couple weeks. Uh, Isaiah 11 is a very important passage because of where it's set in the scope of biblical history, um, what is in here in terms of the promises that are made, and even its connection to the overall story of redemption. What we have here in this text is very relevant for where we live in 2014. Because what we have here is a model. A model of what happens when life gets hard and pressures come and God makes promises and he calls you to believe in them despite what you see with your eyes. That's what Isaiah 11 is about. What's more, it's a text that talks a lot about the promise that's fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. So we, as people who live in the New Testament realm of the Bible, have the ability to look back through the lens of history and see, oh, here's what's going on. And that, in turn, should also strengthen our faith when we get into seasons where we wonder, how is this going to turn out, and how could God possibly make anything good come out of this? It's also, I think, an important text if you're approaching the holiday season, and with one part of your mind you're excited, and yet another part of your heart you're kind of sad because of painful circumstances. And and I want to show you how Isaiah 11 today is helpful if that's where you find yourself today. In order to understand the text, you have to understand some historical background. So if you're a history buff, if you like the History Channel, if you like the History Channel more than HGTV or Hallmark, um, I have to say that. I can't say that out loud unless it travels up to where my wife is teaching. But anyways, um, if you like the History Channel, this is your kind of sermon. If you're not, if you don't like history, just get over it and uh, we'll be fine. The setting of Isaiah 11 is a very desperate season for the people of God. It's set in the 8th century. The nation of Israel is, at this point in history, divided. Because God had judged them, they were divided into two nations, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Isaiah is likely part of the royal family, somehow related to the people in power, and he's a prophet. And he speaks to kings. He ministered during the reigns of Uzziah. Those of you who know the text, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts in Isaiah 6. That text begins with, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. That's the Uzziah. He ministered during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, that's the king that we'll talk about today, and Hezekiah, all of whom were kings of Judah. And the main focus of his ministry, Isaiah's ministry, was to the southern kingdom as the northern kingdom grew closer and closer to judgment, which would eventually come in 733 when the Assyrian Empire swept through. And Isaiah's message to the people of Judah is essentially this, that they needed to turn from their wicked, hard-hearted self-confidence. They needed to turn from all of this and instead look to God as their Savior as judgment was approaching and even as judgment would eventually come. 
Now to understand Isaiah 11, you have to understand the overall theme of the book. So take your Bible, and we're going to be all over Isaiah and a little bit into Romans as well. Take your Bible, go to Isaiah chapter 1. In order to understand the theme of this book, you really need to understand the first two chapters. And, and really, there's three things that emerge in these first two chapters, which is this. That to understand Isaiah, you need to know that the people have rebelled, that God is bringing judgment, and he offers the hope of future restoration. So the people have rebelled, God is going to bring judgment, and yet in the midst of all of that, there's hope because God is going to bring a future glory to Israel. Let's look at this. So here's Isaiah chapter 1 in verse 2. Here's what it says. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner. The donkey, its master's crib, but Israel does that Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. By the way, this is the introduction to the book of Isaiah. Then look to chapter 1 and verse 25. Not only have they rebelled, but there's judgment that's going to come, and God himself is going to bring this judgment. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with a lie and remove all your alloy. Verse 26, I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. And afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So God has a plan for them, but there's some issues that they have to deal with. And then skip over to chapter 2 and verse 2. Here's the ultimate vision, and Isaiah often does this, is show the the people of Judah where things are going to end, where they're going to land. Think of this for your life and mine in the New Testament era, like the book of Revelation. God tells us where things are going to end. Verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's the vision. They're coming a day when... God's people will be righteous and they'll be able to proclaim God's law to the nations. They'll be set up like a signal to the world that they will be able to see the ways of God. As we study chapter 11, you're going to see that the message of Isaiah is that God intends to restore his people, but he will do it through judgment. He will restore them, but he will do it through discipline. That's the theme of Isaiah. Now to understand what's going on in Isaiah 11, you need to know something about a king named Ahaz. He was the 11th king since Israel and Judah had been divided. He was the grandson of King Uzziah. He was a man who did not follow after the Lord. But rather what he did was embraced Baal worship. He even was guilty of sacrificing his children to the god Molech. He led the land of Judah into rampant idolatry. And in fact, on one political trip, he went to Damascus and he saw this altar that he really thought was cool. And he loved the way that people were worshiping in it. It was to a pagan god. So he he takes that design and he has it built in the middle of the court of the temple and begins using this pagan worship vehicle to, to worship a foreign God in the midst of the temple of God. And things got so bad in Israel, or, or Judah rather, that eventually the temple itself is closed and worship at the temple stops. He's a bad king. He's a loser king. Soon after he began his reign, the kings of Israel and Syria conspired together to try and push back against the world superpower that was Assyria during that time. They controlled regions of the world like Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan, that whole region, major superpower. Well, Israel and Syria were small nations, and they didn't want the the threat of Assyria to come in and attack them, and so they tried to put pressure on Ahaz to unite with them in a sort of treaty, in a union of sorts, against Assyria. But Ahaz 
would not join their ranks. As a result of that, Israel and Syria attacked Ahaz, trying to put pressure on him, and he lost many, many battles, and many people were taken captive. So in the middle of when we're reading here in Isaiah, Ahaz is wrestling with the fact that he has pressure from Israel and Syria to the north, and at the same time, when he becomes weakened because of, of, of that sort of um, intrusion into his country, then the Edomites and the Philistines begin uh, attacking him from the south. So he has pressure from both sides. Politically, he's in a very difficult spot. Assyria is growing in their power, and they wonder what... What in the world should they do? And Ahaz has this thought, what I need to do is appeal to Assyria and become a vassal state and just go ahead and surrender, go underneath the protection of Assyria, and that way we can be safe from all of our enemies. And Isaiah comes on the scenes and says to Ahaz, do not put your trust in Assyria. Do not crumble under the weight of these circumstances. Instead, put your trust in the Lord. Put your trust in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Put your trust in your father, David. Eventually, in order to save the nation in Ahaz's mind, he becomes a vassal state of Assyria. For 30 years, in order to become a vassal state, he had to pay tribute to them. He took gold and silver from the temple and from his own palace and brought it to Assyria. Can you imagine this? He gives the temple gold and the treasures to a foreign pagan god, and Judah now becomes a vassal of this world superpower of Assyria. In order to understand Isaiah 11, you know that continually Isaiah goes to Ahaz and tells him, do not put your trust in Assyria. Don't put your trust in in a world superpower, but trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. In fact, take your Bible and go to Isaiah 7 and verse 3. You're going to hear some familiar texts, and they're going to, I hope, make more sense today in light of how they connect not only to the story of Christmas, but to what was really happening when they were written. Isaiah 7, 3. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shirjachshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the washer's field, and say to him, and this could really be a summary of Isaiah's message to Ahaz all the time, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint, because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, and the son of Remaliah. He tells him, do not be afraid. Trust in the Lord. We're God's people. Even though Assyria is going to get close, and even though um, Israel and Syria are attacking us, you need to know that God is going to preserve and protect you. And so as a result, to try and encourage and strengthen Ahaz's heart, Isaiah says to Ahaz, ask the Lord for a sign. Look at chapter 7 and verse 10. He says, ask the Lord for a sign. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as the heaven. So Ahaz to try and strengthen your very weak faith. Go ahead and ask God for a sign. But Ahaz, in his pride, won't do that. And instead, we find verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Do you see it? Matthew cites this text in his gospel connecting Jesus to this promise. This promise to Ahaz had a fulfillment both in his lifetime and in the future. What Isaiah is trying to do is strengthen his faith so he won't crumble under the pressure that's around him. Look at chapter 8 and verse 17. Isaiah wants Ahaz to... Have this mentality, verse 17 of chapter 8. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. You see that? Hiding his face. I hope that you have a category in your understanding of God and in your understanding of Christianity for moments when it seems as though God is hiding his face. Because there will be many moments in your lifetime when it's not going to be all clear to you. One of my favorite hymns, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, it says that behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. 
That there are moments in our lifetime when we only see a sliver of what is actually going on. And in those moments, it seems like we're on the dark side of God's will. Wonder, God, have you forgotten about me? How in the world is this going to work out? What in the world is happening here? It seems as though you've hidden your face. Some people walk through life trying to be a follower of Jesus, thinking that they just have to know everything that God's doing all the time. And frankly, they're miserable and worn out and frustrated because in their mind, they have to know what is happening. And there are many times in our life when we have no idea how it's going to go or how it's going to turn out and yet god in his kind providence is working things that we do not or cannot see the hope for ahaz will come in a future deliverer look at chapter 9 and verse 6 the hope for what would come would be this future deliverer for to us a child is born To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So what is the setting of Isaiah 11? The setting is that Ahaz is fearful of this alliance between Israel and Syria to the north. He has pressure mounting from all sides in his life. He's tempted to look to Assyria for deliverance. And in the midst of all of this pressure, Isaiah exhorts Ahaz to put his trust in the Lord himself, and he uses the promise of future restoration, the promise of a future deliverer, in order to try and strengthen Ahaz's faith. So the theme of this section is this, that God Himself, God Himself is going to rescue and restore His people through this coming Deliverer. And therefore, if that is indeed the promise of God, then Ahaz, you can believe me when life gets hard and the pressure comes in, or life isn't turning out like you've thought, that God gives you these promises, and you can cling to them. And they've all been fulfilled in this coming deliver. Now we in the New Testament era have the benefit of looking back and we can see things that were fulfilled and the way in which God worked out His plan and yet at the same time turn and look towards the book of Revelation and realize that there's another coming restoration that's going to happen. And in the midst of all the pressures of life that we deal with, when you're in the middle of a dark side moment, when it feels like God is hiding His face or you feel like God isn't being clear in all of these purposes to say, I know whom I have believed. And if you fulfilled your promise then, you will certainly fulfill your promise now. So, the God who disciplines, the God who hides himself at times, is also the God who restores. So what are the characteristics then of this deliverer? Isaiah 11 gives us the characteristics of the deliverer. There are two that we're going to look at today. We'll look at more next week. The first that we see in this text is that this deliverer is the one who was promised. In keeping with what we've already seen in Isaiah 7 through 9, our text begins with a promise that is related to a Messiah or a Deliverer that is yet to come. And what Isaiah is aiming to do here is to show Ahaz that God has a plan, a plan for ultimate restoration. And because of that plan, Ahaz needs to trust in the living God and not take his own actions and place his hope or his trust in some earthly superpower. Look at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot... From the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This text is loaded with all kinds of uh, metaphors and especially agricultural language, which, by the way, Isaiah must have had a an, an interest or a love of, of agricultural sort of metaphors because he, he uses them throughout his book. Let me give you a few examples. In chapter 1, he describes the um, the disciplined country of Judah as an oak, whose leaf withers 
like a garden without water. He describes the proud like the cedars of Lebanon and the oaks of Bashan. Now that doesn't create an image in your mind because you don't know about the, 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 the cedars in Lebanon or the oaks. If I were to say the proud are like skyscrapers in New York City, boom, you got that, right? Or we've been brought low and we've been laid waste like Death Valley. You get that. Lebanon was known for tall, majestic cedar trees. Here's an image of, 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 of Lebanon. And the Bible describes them as they're, they're proud like these, these trees. Keep this image in mind because we'll come back to it in a moment. Isaiah calls the people of God a vineyard with wild grapes. God plants a vineyard in Isaiah 5, but all they do is produce wild grapes, which is really interesting that Jesus comes in in the book of John and says that I'm the vine and you're the branches. Why would he use that analogy? Because there's things in Isaiah that are being pulled into the New Testament. You can think of Isaiah like a spiritual bank, and the authors of the New Testament continually pull into and pull out resources and and truths that are in this great book. In chapter 7 and verse 2, when the people are afraid because of the threat of Israel and Syria, it says that their heart shook as the trees of the forest. And then the discipline of the Lord is described like the chopping down of a forest. Look at chapter 10 and verse 33, just before we get this this root, shoot, stump, branch, fruit analogy. Verse 33, it says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. This is God himself. God's going to cut down this forest. The great height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. And Lebanon, why Lebanon? Because Lebanon is known for trees. And Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. In other words, God himself is going to bring discipline not only on the nation of Assyria and Israel and Syria, but God himself is also going to bring discipline upon the people of Israel. That's why when we come to chapter 11 and verse 1, when talking about Judah... It's significant that the image of a stump is used. It's intended to communicate. There was this forest, and God comes and he cuts it down, and all it is now is a field of stumps. Rather than being this majestic forest, there's a devastation that's happened, and God has come through with his axe and wiped it out, and now there's not a sense of life and growth and health, but instead one of devastation. A mighty tree has been cut down. The tree of the people of God. So when he says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, the idea is that God promised that from David's line would come a ruler over Israel. That Jesse, as the father of David, is, is, he's a marker of this promise that God has made. So to call this stump the stump of Jesse was to acknowledge two things. Yes, God has disciplined us. Yes, as a nation, we're a stump. In fact, I want you leaving here today with stump theology. <laughs> One of the guys I was hanging with this week said, that'd be a great book title, Mark, Stump Theology. And as you look back on your life in 2014, the reality is, it doesn't, for some of you, it doesn't look like a garden. It looks like a field of stumps. Like you'd walk in today and go, hi, my name is Mr. Stump, because we have been laid low. And yet he says the stump of Jesse. Why does he say that? Because it means in the midst of when God has laid his people low, when God himself has been the axe, when God has used the axe rather, and God has wiped his people out, yet even in the midst of that stump moment, there are still divine promises that are in the soil, that the roots are going down, and something else is going to happen that's going to bring life out of this utter devastation. That even when God brings stump and a field that's been wiped out, doesn't mean that it's over. He says that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That in the midst of utter devastation from the promises of God comes this life where God begins to bring restoration and brings life again. 
It's significant because there will be many seasons in life, many seasons in biblical history, when you can't see below the surface. And yet God is at work in doing things. And it's just a matter of time until He brings restoration. Now, you may not get to see all of those things in your lifetime, but I know that in my short existence on earth, I can look back and see, oh, here's what the Lord was doing with this. And believe me, there's a lot more that I want to know than what I actually know. But every once in a while, he gives us little glimmers of explanations as to exactly what he's doing. And we see that when God brings discipline or brings hardship or brings challenging circumstances in our lives, that underneath that is still the undergirding promises of God. And he aims to still work out his restoration, even though it looks on the surface as if everything has been wiped out. He says he shall bring forth a shoot A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Oh man, this is a great image that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 4. Take your Bible, you have to see this. Isaiah 4. In Isaiah 4, what he does is he talks about this branch. That's a reference for the Messiah who will be glorious. And then he he links it with Exodus-like language. Look at verse 2 of chapter 4. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and the honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. You remember this from Exodus? Please say yes. (laughs) I worked really hard on that series. Justify my existence by saying yes. Do you remember this? Oh, thank you. Thank you. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. You see what's happening? It's shalom. It's God with His people again. And the branch is going to create this. So in the midst of all of this judgment, in the midst of all this stump creating, in the midst of all these pressures in the world around them, Isaiah is saying to Ahaz, Ahaz, you've got to trust the Lord. You've got to believe in Him. Don't put your trust in Assyria. Don't you panic. Don't you be afraid. Trust that the Lord's going to work this out. It's a beautiful assurance of divine promise so when he picks up this language in isaiah 11 and says a branch from his roots shall bear fruit he's connecting it not only back to isaiah chapter 4 but also all the way back to the concept of shalom and peace and god dwelling with his people all of that to say that what isaiah is driving at in verse 1 is this that underneath the landscape of our humanity And underneath the landscape of individual people's lives that sometimes look like a field of stumps, don't forget that underneath lies God's grace. Underneath, listen to me, underneath devastation is divine promise. As I've said before, before, there is a floor to your pain, and there is a floor to hardship. And the floor is God's kind and gracious providence. For those of you who are not followers of Jesus, you need to understand, even if you're not a Christian, that what I'm talking about here and believing in that kind of promise, that that is the essence of what the message of the Bible is about. That if you were to boil the Bible down, essentially is a belief that God keeps His promise. In fact, what's interesting is that you become a Christian by believing in the promise of God. What promise? It sounds like this, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. What is that? That's a promise. It's a promise that 2,000 years ago, a baby was born in Bethlehem. He, he was raised. He, he lived a sin less life, died on the cross, and that 
God takes the death of His perfect Son and will apply it to those who put their faith in His promise that if you receive Christ, God cleanses you of your sin, gives Jesus all of your punishment, and gives you all of Christ's righteousness. And the belief in that promise is called faith. And that's what makes somebody a follower of Jesus and a Christian. So at the end of the day, everything that Christianity is, is essentially a belief in promises. And so I hope today that you'll believe that promise. And something within you would say, that's true, and I believe it. And if that happens, that is not you. That is the Spirit of God working in you. Oh, it is you, but you you know it's not all you. To be a follower of Jesus then means that you believe that promise at first, and then here's the great thing, and you keep believing God's promises every single day of your life until He comes, and then all of eternity is just an eternal celebration of the promises of God. We will never weary of saying, you kept your promise, you kept your promise, you kept your promise, you kept your promise. And when you stand before God and He asks you, why should I let you into heaven? Your only answer is, I believed your promise. You promised me. You promised me that if I received Christ, my sins would be forgiven. That is the essence of what faith is. And then the rest of your life, you just keep taking the promises of God. And you go to Isaiah 11 and other texts in the Bible. And you read the scriptures and you're always digging up promises. And you're storing them in your heart and clinging to them. So that when temptations come or wrong thoughts enter in or hardship comes. And you're tempted to think things like, God is cruel and unkind. And you think, no! God is for me and not against me. Or when you're tempted to think, There's no purpose in this. This is all just random acts. No. All things work together for good to them who are loved, who love God, who are called according to His purpose. That you start, you cling and collect the promises of God so that when pressures come from all sides, you don't run to human reasonings. You run and cling and trust in the very heart of the promises of God. Next month we're going to be in Romans 8. One of the most promise-laden texts in all of the Bible. And the beautiful reality of that chapter tells us that in the midst of hard and painful moments, somehow in God's kind providence, He is working everything out for our good. Even though there have been many times in my lifetime when I have said this to the Lord, this does not feel kind. This does not feel kind. But I know somehow it is. I think real Christianity is not just walking around going, it's all kind, it's all kind, it's all kind, it's all kind. I think real Christianity says, this is hard, this is stump living, yo. I mean, this is right, saying to your kids, hey, welcome to Stumpville, right? And yet we know somehow there's a shoot that's going to come out of this. And it may not, it may be in our lifetime, it may not. But I will not accuse God of being unkind. But I will acknowledge that the land that I live in is really hard. Ahaz couldn't make this jump. He, he, all he could see was, it's hard, i got to go to Assyria for my help, nothing else makes sense, and he wasn't willing to take the jump to put his trust in the Lord. This text, friends, serves as a great reminder that God always keeps His Word, and there is always, always, always a gracious plan underneath painful moments so that empty seat at the table this christmas the addition of a major illness into your family you never heard you didn't even know about this disease last christmas and now it's like a family member you want to leave another year without a pregnancy still on the waiting list for an adoption Another year where loneliness and not a relationship is the norm. Another year with an uncertain future in your job. These are all, this is stump life. And yet in the midst of all of that, God promises us that He has not forgotten us. He has not abandoned us. So be careful that you don't make the assessment of your life through a little lens of your ability to see. Instead, take a step back and look at Ahaz and look at what God did through the words of Isaiah and see how he's showed up in the incarnation. And if nothing else, doesn't the cross alone bear witness to this? How could you use a cross to save the world? 
That's amazing. And that's what God does. Here's the second thing. Is that we have this one who is empowered. He's not only the one who's promised, but also the one who's empowered. Look at verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah, more than any Old Testament prophet, talks about the role of the Spirit. When it says the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, that's not just a statement of fact, it's a marker for something more. And the marker is that this one upon whom the Spirit falls is the anointed one. He'll have the Spirit like David had in 1 Samuel 16, where after he was anointed, the Spirit, it says, rushed upon him, that he was known. David was as a man endowed with the Spirit of God, whereas Saul was known as a spiritless man. It says that he'll have the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Some people think that these are three aspects of leadership. Others think that when you put it together with the reference to the spirit in verse 2, there are seven spirits. That fits with Revelation 3 and the seven spirits of God. It, It seems to me what he's just simply saying here is this, that the Messiah will be endowed with total empowerment by the spirit. He will be saturated on earth with divine power through the spirit. The anointed one will be marked by power from on high. Now, if you know your New Testament, you know where I'm going. This is softball, right? I mean, this this is an easy, it's a t-ball hit right here. So essentially, the New Testament tells us that Jesus was the one who was endued with power by the Holy Spirit. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 1. At at his baptism in Mark 1, what happens? The Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and then from heaven we hear this pronouncement, You are my beloved Son, and in you I am well pleased. And Jesus' ministry is launched in that moment. Why is it launched? Because of what's happened in Isaiah 11, that's why. It's a marker that that Jesus really is the Messiah. He he shows up at a religious gathering, at the temple or tabernacle. He opens up the scripture. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news. Guess what book of the Bible that's from, by the way? Isaiah, good guess. Isaiah 61. And he didn't just like open the, open the scroll and go, uh, he chose that text because of the significance of what's in that text. He conducts his ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit according to Luke 4. He casts out demons, performs miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit according to Matthew chapter 12. So all of that to say it's the Spirit that has this critical role in the life and ministry of Jesus. He's led by the Spirit. He goes in the power of the Spirit into his ministry so that everything about the life and ministry of Jesus was somehow connected to the role of the Spirit. And that meant that Jesus was not only a miracle worker and a healer and a communicator of God's Word, but he was really, truly the anointed one. It means that as the the anointed one, he's going to rule with the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Why why is that important? Because there are so many loser kings in Israel's history, that's why. And every time a loser king would get into power, guess what happened? The whole nation would become a nation of losers. They'd follow the wrong gods. They'd They'd serve the wrong entities. They'd practice the wrong activities because the king could never be trusted to be full of the Spirit of God. And now here comes this ruler, this Messiah, who will, as we'll see next week, brings justice and equity and truth. And there's no wondering, is it going to go left? Is it going to go right? There's no worrying about what is this ruler going to be like. And the effect will be that the whole world will see the beauty of God's wisdom and the glory of His name. Verse 10 says, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Mm. No more elections. No more campaigns. No more grand juries. No more sense of justice or injustice. No more police cars. No more speed limit signs. You can drive as fast as you want in the new heaven, new earth. (laughs) Imagine, there's no possibility of it ever going wrong. Does your heart long for that? 
the role of the Spirit is significant here. And I just want you to realize that from a historical perspective, it means that when Christ, He said, I have to go away so that you could receive the Spirit. That there's something really significant about the Spirit dwelling in us as New Testament believers. Something that the Old Testament saints would have looked at and coveted and longed for that to be their reality. That that Jesus says that He has to send the Spirit because that is something that's even better for you than me being here. That's what He said to the disciples. I need to go away so that the Counselor can come. It's better for you that I leave. So there's something about the Spirit's presence in the New Testament that's really significant. There are personal applications for this. The Spirit was given to bring the personal presence of Christ into our lives. That what, what is the church gathered? The church gathered is a group of people who have all been indwelt by the Spirit. This, this is, welcome to the temple. This is it. We're together, filled with the Spirit, singing and praying, rejoicing, laughing, looking at the Scriptures, discussing what is it that God is doing in our hearts and lives. This is the This is as close to the new heaven and the new earth that you get until you go to glory. And the New Testament pictures it as something beautiful and lovely. On January 4, we'll be in Romans 8. Let me have you turn there. I'm going to give you a little highlight of what's to come. The Spirit is all over Romans 8. It is not by mistake that at the pinnacle of Paul's argument about the beauty of God's righteousness, he talks about the Spirit over and over and over and over again. Look at verse 2 of Romans 8. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of death. Is that how you think about your life? Verse 4 through 6 in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And the glorious thing is because of redemption, that reality of setting your mind on the Spirit is actually possible in this lifetime. You can have this be a reality. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Notice how linked the presence of the Spirit is to the reality of your conversion. Any of you who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, Paul says, essentially, if the Spirit is in you, then Christ is in you. Although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The idea is this. You have the Spirit to help you, to assist you, to walk with you. Verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our children, with our spirit, that we are the children of God. You know what that means? It means that in the midst of life, when everything falls out, and you're about ready to hit the bottom, and you're believing the promises of God, I know there's a floor, it is your kind providence, and you're about to think, how in the world? world is this ever going to work out for my good i feel like i'm being treated like an enemy the spirit says to you you are a son and don't you ever forget it the spirit intercedes for you with groanings too deep for words the spirit helps you to walk in newness of life it helps you to put death he helps you to put sin to death so you can walk in the kind of righteous living that god wants you to live it means that the spirit assures you that you're the child of god he opens your eyes to see things from the word it means that even while you're listening to a sermon something speaks to your heart something i may not even say or suddenly the implication of it just opens wide for you in a new way that is the spirit of the living christ at work in you and through you and it is part of the inaugurated reign of christ oh he's coming again and there will be a new kingdom and a new heaven and a new earth but this king has begun to rule and he sent the spirit in order to bring little snippets of that reality into our life today especially especially when you feel like you're living in stumpville and you're walking around going what happened here 
And it's the Spirit who says, do not forget, you are more than conquerors through Him who loved you. And when we get weary of all of the brokenness in the world, verse 23 comes in because the creation groans. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So this is what Advent is about. We remember the first Advent. We groan as we're between two homes. And we say, even so, Lord Jesus, would you come? And not just come and get me out of here, but would you come right now and help me Deal with the empty place at the table, the loneliness in my soul, this disease that is in our family now, this divorce that's made me really jaded, this relationship breakup that just has left me empty. Would you come right now and be king? Because you are king. And I can bank my life on your promises. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to bring your word to bear on our lives today. And I pray that you would, by your spirit even now, begin to apply the implications of this message to where each of us live. I ask you in the remaining moments of this service to make plain what promises we can believe, and what assurance in you we need to have. Before we close, church, there will be some people up here at the front who'd love to pray over you if that would be helpful, and it often is. Before we leave, I just want to give you a moment, time to reflect and think. You've heard much from Isaiah 11, In Romans 8, the question that I want you to think about is, so what is God saying? Just give the Lord a moment. Maybe you need to say something to Him. Lord, I want to trust You that Your promises are true, even though I'm just able to fill in that blank today. When the music begins to play, it can be dismissed. But for a few moments, let's just... Let's wait before the Lord and trust in Him.